0: lesser man cannot handle an audible like that but uh I know can count on Richard we have made it to the end of our study of Hebrews we're in section number 12 and uh, the author of Hebrews has spent 12 chapters working diligently referencing so much from the Old Testament temple lifestyle Jewish heritage And weaving together this beautiful narrative to explain to you that Jesus Christ in the simplest form is the greatest thing that you could ever turn to to find life. We've summarized those things in the sense of finding peace and joy, hope, security, affirmation, love, all those things that we're looking for and longing for. The Hebrew writers tried to tell you this in a basic statement. Jesus Christ is the greatest thing you can turn to to find life. And that means that he has greater impact than anything else. Missing him is a greater problem than any of us can ever imagine. Receiving him brings greater blessing. You know, one thing becomes very, very clear in chapter 13. When you close chapter 12, if you read there at the end of chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, it brings this great um, uh, book of Hebrews almost to a close, in a sense. You could finish the book of Hebrews theologically in chapter 12, verse 29. And it brings all of these thoughts together about how great Jesus Christ is, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, And this, in theory, what God has called us to in verse 29, 28 29, that we should, out of fear and reverence, serve God. But what the Hebrew writer does in chapter 13 is very important for us today. He gets incredibly practical of how to live. How does God actually want us to live? And one thing becomes very clear about this writer, which reveals to us about who God is that God is not interested in just changing your religion. He's interested in changing your life. He wants you to actually live differently as a Christian than you did when you were not a Christian. You can see that why this is important because what he's spending most of the time doing in Hebrews is convincing people who are already religious to not turn from Judaism But come back to Christianity. But the ultimate goal is not just that they would choose a different religion. But that what they've chosen and who they follow has great impact on how they live day in and day out. So by way of that, we're going to see that knowing Jesus as the greatest solution to our life is going to call from us a greater response than just changing religion but actually changing the way that we live. If you are an outline person, you saw on the outline today, I've got an expanded version of all of chapter 13. We're going to see that Jesus calls us to change the people we serve, our practices of faith. We see that he calls us to change our perspective on ourself. And then ultimately we're going to finish with how Jesus calls us to change our purpose with God. Because we have a purpose with God. Not just God has a purpose with us. For the time's sake, we're going to start with the first one and probably jump to the last one. And those of you that uh, like to get your notes, I'll get you the middle stuff here just uh, after service. Let's start with Jesus and the calling that he has for us on changing the people we serve. Now, if you look in the first section there, verses 1 through 6, there's um, what the Bible calls imperatives, commands one after another. They're kind of hard to see. Um, you could separate them. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality. She so begins to list these things. And all of these have to do with how we serve people, how we interact with people. Christianity is absolutely a religion that worships the divine, but in the same breath serves humanity. Remember when Jesus was questioned, what's the greatest Thing God has commanded us to do what's the greatest thing God has expected of us and he said you shall love the Lord your God all your heart soul strength and mind and the second is just like it love your neighbor as yourself and we see this section verses 1 through 6 is almost like an expanded commentary on Romans chapter 1 chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 where he tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice And verse 2 says Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed. Well, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6 is an expanded version of that. It explains to you. It's pretty practical. And so he calls us to serve in two main ways. The first way is it with compassion. Compassion. I want to list these imperatives for you and explain them to you quickly. The first one he says that we need to be people with compassion means to join ourselves with other people. Like when he says to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. This gets demonstrated by the way we live. We join ourselves with other people. He says, first of all, we have a love for God's family. Yes, he is talking here about a love that is specific to those who share the faith in Jesus Christ when he says, let brotherly love continue, meaning let it remain for the rest of your days, exist in a state where you love and care for those that you share faith with. This is a special kind of family affection shared amongst believers. And it is it, it is to be distinguished. It is to be unique. It is to be cherished and special. You see, this kind of love that we're supposed to share with each other, this phileo, this brotherly type love that looks at each other as if we're family, meaning we do things for each other like we would do things for our biological family. This kind of love, it might seem on the surface that it only serves believers. In fact, it serves both believers and non-believers. First to the believers on the inside, it serves us, right? We care for each other. When somebody is in need of something, we provide it, food or clothing or shelter. We take care of each other. And so if you're in the family of god you get treated with family type love and we need to be doing that for each other taking that very seriously for those that aren't in jesus christ how does it serve them it serves as a witness like jesus told us to be a city set on the hill a light into the world it serves as a massive demonstration that these people have a unique characteristic about the way they treat their family that no one goes without that no one is in need that in this family the family of god people are taken care of regardless of class and race and experience and age regardless you know one of the things that was on the books of the first century christians was taking care of orphans and widows that those who were marginalized in society if they were part of the body were cared for and served and loved they cherished them And so the first thing we do is we share in compassion by loving each other, which serves both us inside and even as a witness to those outside, that there's a love available that goes beyond human rationale. Secondly, though, he doesn't leave us uh, to forget those who are outside the body of Christ. In fact, he gives us a specific explanation of that. In verse two, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels without being aware. So we've got love for God's family, hospitality for strangers. It's kind of an interesting word, right? We've sort of cornered this word to mean more like the the sector of business, of restaurants and hotels, hospitality. But it really just means warmth, sharing, hosting. Engaging Entertaining which means to to interact with and investing Most likely uh, this is my guess uh, because just based solely on my experience you might have a different experience, but most likely Today in American culture very few people who you don't know are knocking on your door and asking if they could sleep in your house tonight anybody having that happen very much? strolling through your subdivision, you know, out of the 96,000 houses that look the same, they go, uh, that one. And they walk up to your door and they go, hey, your house looked interesting, Uh, you know, can I sleep there tonight? That's probably not happening very much in our culture right now. So how do we practice, maybe if you're an Airbnb that happens, but um, how do we practice hospitality with strangers, literally people we don't know? I would ask you to pause right now and think about, You guys know a tic-tac-toe board take your house as the center you know the spot where Reed always takes when we play tic-tac-toe he takes the middle every time and I never get to go first take your house as the center and I want you to picture all the houses that fill your tic-tac-toe board how many of those people are strangers today I told you this is practical right how many of those people have been in your house for dinner How many of those people have come to you and they needed a ride or need some gas for their mower? Or you've offered it. Do you see what I'm getting at? Well, you've placed yourself where you are in your world. How many of those neighbors are strangers right now? Okay. How many of your coworkers are the passerbys on the way to the coffee or water jug that you know their face and you might know their first name and their department, but are actually strangers? How many of the people you see at school, young people? You know their name? Probably their last name even, you know? But you don't know anything about their family, anything about what they're interested in, what they're struggling with. How many of these people are strangers to us? What would it do if we invited these people to lunch or dinner in our home? What if we said, hey, after work, let's grab coffee. Or after school, let's go hang out for a little while. I want to get to know you. What if we gave just one hour to get to know somebody who was a stranger? to ask them about their life, listen, people in the world do not do this, we've got to be willing to do this, can you imagine how that would go for us, if we would be willing to do that, ask somebody, maybe your server at lunch today, some of you are going to go out to lunch today, That you, you won't know your server most likely, I want you to ask your server, first of all their name, his or her name, ask them this question, We're getting ready to pray for our our lunch today. Is there something I can pray for you about today? I have yet to meet a person be offended when I've asked them if I could pray for them. I've been in hospitals with atheists. I've been in places all over. I have yet to find somebody say, I'm offended that you want to pray for me, even if they're not believers. Just ask. You see, God has called us to entertain, to engage with, to be hospitable to strangers, to people we don't know. That we might have an opportunity to share the love of God. And you notice he tells us this one in particular has the opportunity to bless us. He says people, they don't even know that they're entertaining angels, meaning those that have something from God for us. These strangers that you bless, that you entertain, that you are hospitable towards, bless us when we serve them. I want to challenge you to think about how to do that. The third one he says that we need to do is have empathy for those in bondage. To visit those in prison and care for those who are marginalized. Who are the people? Those in prison. Those who are mistreated. What are we supposed to do? He says, remember them. Keep them in mind. Have them in your vision. And number two, he says, we're supposed to share in their suffering. This means we write cards. We visit. We care for those who are in prison. The guilty ones? Yes, the guilty ones. Even them. We love them. We care for them. It means we connect with those people who are marginalized. Young people at school, do you know somebody that literally you see them day in and day out and they're left out? Let us not be people that jump on the bandwagon of mockery and ridicule. Who get our own feeling better about ourselves by making fun of somebody else. Christians should be the people on the front line eradicating loneliness and bullying. In our schools, we should be doing that as Christians. To our adults and our co-workers in our workplaces we have to be people avoiding gossip about the co-worker who's the problem or the person that causes me issues you know people that are a problem have problems and when they are a problem they rarely get help for those problems what if christians absorbed pain to provide healing exactly like jesus christ did for us who came near to us, absorbed our pain because of our problem to provide healing for us. Christians are called to alleviate suffering of others, not create more. We're supposed to seek to care for people. Number four, he says, we need to have a commitment to marriage. Strange, right? It's kinda out of the middle of nowhere. Love people, love strangers, love those in prison, love the marginalized. Oh, and by the way, honor marriage. Keep the commitment of marriage Alive. This is for both married and unmarried people. So if you're not married right now and you're like, well, I don't really have to worry about this. No, he says this is for all. This is for all people. To the married people, we need to honor marriage in our culture. There is no doubt that the principles of what marriage is is under attack. There's no doubt about it. But that, could that be a result of us opening the door by not honoring marriage? by not exalting what it is, by not displaying its glory. Listen, a wife was never designed by God to be the old ball and chain, and husbands were never designed by God to be the baboon who can't figure anything out. We self-fulfill and live into those roles in our marriages because sitcom TV has taught us that's what marriage is supposed to look like. The husband is the buffoon who makes everybody laugh but can't figure anything out, and the wife is super stressed who has to hold everything together, right? Do you live into those roles in your marriage? We're self-fulfilling what we're watching on television, not what God has done. And that's not honoring what marriage is. Not at all. We need to honor godly marriage, which is commitment, investment, respect, honor. And keeping ourselves to that person as long as we both shall live, both mind, body, and heart. To the unmarried. You honor marriage. Listen, if you're not married right now, listen. You honor marriage by preparing yourself for marriage. Marriage is a life-changing commitment. And I promise you're not ready for it. (laughs) I'm still not. I promise. It is a life-changing commitment. And you will not be ready for marriage because one day you wake up and you're just old enough to be married. You're not ready for it if you just wait. You can begin now by learning how to communicate with a great amount of respect. How to keep your word. When you give your word to somebody, keep it. Even if you don't like it, keep your word. You'll learn to honor your commitments. That's how you prepare to get married. Become the kind of person today that you want to be as a wife or a husband someday. Prepare yourself. So you honor marriage if you're not married by preparing for it. But listen, secondly, you also honor marriage by waiting for it. Now, if you're not married and maybe you're still in your parents' house, you need to work out the details of what dating looks like for your parents or your guardian. If you're 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever, uh, I I can't give you rules on dating. Your parents need to work that out with you. But I can tell you one thing. If you're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you're still at home, here's something I want to tell you. If you can't get married right now, which at 13, typically in, in Ohio, you can't. Some of you, I'm not going to leave you alone on the other states, but you typically can't... Hey, listen to me. Don't act like you're married, okay? Just wait for it. Relationships that you have in school when you're 13, 14, and 15, do not put the weight of marriage on those relationships. Just learn how to enjoy people of the opposite sex, to learn how to respect communication, to learn how to be with people. Without the weight of life or death marriage, okay? Just wait for it. And that will get ready. You see, one way, you learn to enjoy people by guarding your heart and waiting for marriage. One way you guard your heart is to guard your body. He says here that we need to honor marriage because God will judge the sexually immoral, both adulterous and the fornicators. And one of the ways that you guard your heart is to guard your body. Sex is a powerful nuclear thing. It is more than recreation. It's more than pleasure. In fact, the Hebrews had this figured out. The word they used for beloved, the one that they would be married to, was the word do, D-O-D, which literally meant to the Hebrews the mingling together of two souls. They understood this. You see, sex was designed by God and meant to be great. And what makes it great, what makes great possible, pardon me, is that it can be enjoyed between two people who have both lovingly and legally promised to each other, I will never leave you. I will not leave. That's the basis where it can be great. By preparing for and waiting for marriage, you will honor the marriage, uh, the marriage bed. God may or may not have a spouse for you. He may not. Some people uh, may not get married. But if God does, the way you live today will bring honor to the future marriage that God is going to bring to you. If you've made mistakes, some of you have made mistakes in here that are not yet married, there's still hope for you. I'll never forget one of the most life-changing conversations I had with a friend named Willie Franklin. I was 18 years old, and I was hopeless in every aspect of my life. Socially, relationally, spiritually, I was hopeless. Hopeless about my future prospect of getting married. And he told me at 18 years old, he said, start today praying this prayer god be with if you want me to be married be with the spouse in my future that she may be the person today that i need her to be and god help me today to be the person i need to be for that spouse in the future and he taught me to honor the marriage that i was going to have today when i was living today and when you make mistakes but you start praying that way, living that way, when you meet that person and you're proceeding towards marriage, you can tell them, long before I knew you, I made a commitment to this marriage. Honor marriage. Let me give you the last one when we'll be done. Contentment. Jesus said it best, you can, either, you can either serve God or money. Look in verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. I love that the, you know, the promise Jesus made, I'll never leave you or forsake you, is tied together with when we worry about money. He said... Be content, keep your life free from money. Jesus said it best. You can either serve God or you can serve money. If you love money, you will serve money. If you serve money, you will not serve people. People will serve you as you seek for that which you want most, which is money. So we are called to serve and to care for people with compassion. Let me give you the last thing. purpose with God. I want to share this with you quickly. I'm sorry our time is running out. In verses 20 and 21, let me share this with you. So we serve, Jesus calls us to respond by serving people, loving, hospitality, empathy, commitment, contentment, and we do that with great confidence because the promise of Jesus Christ, our confidence comes with the promise of Christ's presence, but he also changes our purpose with God. Here's my question for you. What is it that you really want from God? What's your purpose with him? You're here today. Why? What are you doing with God in your relationship with him? What's your your purpose with him? We we can speak about his purpose for us, but what's your purpose with him? And here's what he says. "When When we understand who Jesus is, it begins to change our intent with God. What we intend to get from God. What we want from God. What we ask for from God. You see, he shares with with us in verse 20, God's nature, God's action, and God's intent. Look quickly at this. Verse 20, now look at his nature. May the God of peace. Here's God's nature. God is a God of peace. And typically when we think of peace, we think of just calm, still. The word peace actually gets its essence from this idea to make things whole, to make things right, to make things healthy. It's the idea that all the parts that were once scattered have now been brought back together and fit in the way that they're supposed to fit and things are now functioning the way that they're supposed to function. God is the God of peace because God is the God of healing and redemption and making things whole. So that's who he is. That's what he thinks through. That's how he exists. Look at his action. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, his action was exalting a Lord, a shepherd, and a God. Now, do you understand what, Jesus, what God did? He raised Jesus, who was a Lord, a master over you, a shepherd, a leader that you must follow, and a divine being of an eternal covenant, a God that we must fall underneath that's what he's exalted that's what he's raised up and that's what he's called for us to relate to is this jesus who is our master our leader and our sovereign ruler and his intent was this in verse 21 paul's prayers may the god of peace jump down to 21 equip you with every good thing that you may do his will you see god's intent is to equip you with what you need to do his will that means To do his will means to share in his desire for life, to share in his desire for what he wants in the world, to execute his intent. That's what God has wanted from us. So the question is, when you get Jesus, what do you really ask for from God? To make circumstances more comfortable, situations easier? Certainly I can understand that. But are you begging from God for the things that you will need to make his will happen in your life? Is that what you're asking for? You see, failing to do the will of God is what got humans in the mess. Adam and Eve started the process. The rest of us have fallen into this. That we have somehow connected this idea that God's will is not great for us. That God's will is difficult and hard and and, um, it's not going to be great. It's not going to be fun. We're not going to enjoy it. Somewhere along the line, Satan convinces us that God's will is not desirable. And so we've abandoned God's will to pursue our own will. And yet, there was one human who actually didn't. There was one who didn't fail to do the Father's will. In fact, he came to the garden at the end of his life and said, I have a will, but I'm willing to lay that will down so that I could do your will, Father. And his will involved dying for an undeserved people, a torturous and horrific death. He was willing to do that. And in him doing God's will, What you learn is that God's will for your life is actually not something you should avoid, something you should stray from, something you should hide from. In fact, God's will for your life is something you should desire and long for. So when you wake up and you start your day with prayer and you finish your day with prayer and you're working through the day and you're walking with God, here's your prayer, God, give me what I need. I don't always know what it is, but give me what I need because your will in my life will lead me to peace and joy. Eternally, that's what I want Do you see how knowing Jesus Christ is the greater solution is not just a change in your religion? But a radical change in your life and that's the call None of this soft sort of I just hope that he helps me escape hell and then uh, everything will be fine I don't. Re- He's wanting to unite your will and his so that you realize that his will was the one that was always meant to be and you'll finally find what you're looking for. Let's stand and sing. If you have a need, you can come.